Please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 before we go to John 15. detour has ended. We're back to John 15, back to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at several Old Testament texts this morning. Psalm 80 is where we start. Ezekiel 15 as well. and Maybe a brief stop in Isaiah and also the Gospel of John, of course. <clears throat> now, as Rich announced, we do have a congregational meeting after church this morning. So, members... Very highly encouraged for you to stay. I know some of you may already have something that you cannot make it for, and we understand that. But you're very uh, highly encouraged that you are here for this. And also those who are interested um, in learning more about the church, this church, uh, what better way than to attend a meeting and to attend a prayer meeting, find out who we really are. Um, and with that said, since we're having a meeting, some of you may think that, you know, this sermon should be a little shorter then. That's a real cute thought, but uh, we, we'll see how that goes. <clears throat> but we began a new phase in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These few chapters known as Jesus' farewell teachings. We recall in chapter 14, Jesus was comforting his disciples in the upper room. They were understandably perplexed, fearful, now that they understood that Jesus was going to depart immediately. We then see a shift as Jesus and his disciples depart from the upper room in verse 31 of chapter 14, which we'll see in a moment, when Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. Now Jesus will begin to instruct them further on the duties of discipleship. So chapter 13 and 14 teach us what Christ has done and is doing for his disciples. And chapter 15 is how we follow him, what we are to do, and what bearing fruit means. A.W. Pink says in chapter 13 and 14, it is the freeness and fullness of divine grace. In chapter 15, it is our responsibility to bear fruit. So there's questions to consider as we go through this, as we go through chapter 15, which We'll start on this morning, and we will look at uh, the, the true vine, Jesus Christ, and Lord willing, we'll pick up more uh, next Lord's Day. But questions such as, why does Christ refer to himself as the true vine? Why is that? And what is meant by every branch that does not bear fruit is taken away? And who is being addressed primarily? And we know that right off the get-go, that is disciples, that is believers. The 11 disciples who were left after Judas took off, after he betrayed Jesus. But in the Old Testament, we often find a vineyard, or the word vine, as representing Israel. We see that, Psalm 80, Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 15, uh, Hosea, several chapters there. In most of those passages, the vine is described as bad or turning from what it should have been uh, to what it ought not to be. Or the branches are bad. They're not what they should be. Israel is portrayed this way. And for our text in John 15, we'll find that the background is found in in Psalm 80 and Ezekiel chapter 15. So Psalm 80, please silence any electronic devices that you have this morning. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 1. Let's just go through all of this and we consider the background and then we'll go on to John 15. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your power and come to save us. 
O God, restore us and cause your face to shine on us and we will be saved. Listen to the cry out thus far, as a cry out should be for a church looking for a God to revive a church. Come and save us from ourselves, O God. Restore us to what we ought to be and cause your face to please God to shine upon us. Verse 4, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You'll see that is repeated, verse 7 from verse 3. And here we go for for us this morning, for uh, our study. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boats. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. So as we pause there for a moment, we see in verse 13, the vine, Israel, described as being damaged, by animals, specifically uh, described as a boar. And if you've ever been around wild boars or wild hogs, um, you can see and you understand the tremendous amount of damage they can do in a very short period of time, a matter of hours. They can destroy an entire area. They dig in, they chew, they eat. They're nuisance animals. They're very fun to hunt, by the way, down in in the south. I heard an amen. I know who that was. must have been Brother Gary. Yet, it was ultimately God who dealt with this vine. Verse 12, broken down its hedges. Let's continue on. Verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the Son who you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man at your right hand. Upon the Son of Man who you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So we can look at this psalm and we say they are definitely in some rough shape. And they're calling upon God. Verse 16, burned with fire, cut down. In the middle of all of this, there's a cry for God to take care of this vine. G.K. Beale says of this psalm, by the way, if you want to know more about typology in the Old Testament, what, how that is fulfilled in the New Testament, uh, Old Testament to New Testament, G.K. Beale, excellent scholar. I'm pointing those things out. I uh, commend his, his work. Um, most of his stuff that I have read is just been profound in many ways. G.K. Beale, he says, Jesus is the true vine who has come to do that which Israel, as God's former vine, did not do. Okay, we just read about the former vine. He is perfectly, Christ, perfectly faithful, obedient, and fruitful in good works. John's use of true elsewhere in the Gospel of John refers to Jesus being the typological fulfillment Fulfillment of various Old Testament features. Israel's imperfect institutions, light, bread, and witness, and so on, he is that to which Israel as an important vine pointed. Imperfect vine pointed. 
Jesus, the true vine. He is the answer to the plea that a future time God would take care of this vine, even the Son who you have strengthened for yourself. So, as we consider that, now go to Ezekiel. A few books over, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel hang together. So, if you think of that, you can find Ezekiel as well. He's on the tail end. Ezekiel chapter 15. There's a little bit of lamentations between them. Ezekiel chapter 15. I'm just going to really plow through these next verses. And then we'll get to John 15. The background is important, though, for our next study or so. Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of the branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything, or men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both its ends and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less... When the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it be still made into anything? Consider verse 6 when we go to John 15. Not right now. Therefore, thus says the Lord, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord, When I set my face against them, thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. Quick commentary again, G.K. Beale. He says, just as God will burn up useless branches of a vine, so he will judge Israel because they have become useless. That is unfruitful and unfaithful. There was no true connection to the vine as it ought to. To have been. So, with these two texts as a background, and there's many others, we find that with Jesus, his statement in verse, in chapter 15, verse 1 of the Gospel of John, which you turn to now, we'll see that Jesus is contrasting himself with Israel's failure, and he is presenting himself as the true vine. Contrasting himself with Israel's failure, and he is presenting himself as the true vine. I will pause a moment for a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, I ask God that you would help me this morning to preach your word accurately for the glory of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit of God would fill me. In Jesus' name, amen. Several points for us to consider. A familiar passage for us this morning in John chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, says Jesus. First point for us, the designated vine, which is the true vine, the designated vine. We'll find that all of our points this morning begin with the letter D. The last of the seven I am statements. I am the true vine. The I am sayings. We recall that the others were, as Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John 6. The light of the world in John chapter 8. I am the door in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. And of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the true vine. In contrast to idolatrous Israel, which showed a lack of fruitfulness, The Lord said in Jeremiah chapter 2, don't turn there, I have it for you, verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? 
of idolatry. In the Old Testament, again, the vine symbolic of Israel. Jesus says in the New Testament, I am the true vine. And we recall in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, Isaiah foretells of God sending his son, the true vine. And it says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground, speaking of the Messiah to come. So when we consider a few Old Testament passages, we understand that Jesus refers to himself here uh, as the true vine. We see what does the Old Testament say about that? And we say, aha, we see what he means. And the disciples there too, and say they were uh, entrenched in the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament, and they knew what Jesus meant. Or they were learning more about what Jesus meant. And furthermore... On the route from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they were headed in the Mount of Olives, the disciples would be able to see the temple. One notable uh, feature was a gigantic, elaborate vine that was above the entry to the holy place. And over time, wealthy Jewish individuals would bring gold and other gems and dress up that vine. Josephus indicated that some of the grape clusters were as the height of a man. So this was no small vine. This was an elaborate setup. And since the vine was the symbol of Israel, the temple was decorated with this image. So it's possible that Jesus and the disciples... We're standing and looking at this spectacle, at this ginormous vine that was all dressed up, possible, as Jesus was teaching them about being the true vine. Giving them a word picture right, right then, as he has done before. Jesus also says, my father is the vine dresser. Or the gardener, one who tills the soil. Now this is the only I am statement that is followed by a predicate. Okay, now this is an English class this morning. Thankful to God for that. But the predicate following the I am statement, my father, the vine dresser. The statement of the father takes one back to Isaiah chapter 5, where God is described as digging and clearing and caring for the vineyard. You can read that on your own time, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Yet, although the digging, the, the clearing, the caring, and the planting, only worthless grapes are produced. This explains what the vine dresser does. Verse 2, chapter 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So he takes away the branches that bear no fruit. He removes them. Okay, we understand what that means. Taken away, removes them, gone. He prunes branches that do bear fruit so that the branch may produce more fruit. The point, every branch will be dealt with. Every branch will be touched and dealt with by the vine dresser. Either removed or pruned. No branch is going to be on its own and saying, oh, he didn't get me. No, every one will be dealt with. No branch remains untouched by the vine dresser. This designated vine, Jesus Christ, the true vine, the vine dresser, the Father. And then secondly, we see the distinguishable branches. Distinguishable branches. Verse 2 again. There's two type of branches here we're seeing. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So there is a branch in me that does, in Christ, that does not bear fruit. 
He takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Two branches described. Both connected to Christ in some way. Now this is an Arminian's dream right here. But consider how Judas Iscariot was connected to Christ in contrast to how Peter was connected to Christ. Judas was there. Judas participated. Judas was there for years. Yet, was a traitor, was not a true disciple, betrayed Jesus Christ. Peter, on the other hand, denied Christ three times. Yet was a true disciple. And persevered because of God until the end. There are branches connected to Jesus that do not bear fruit. How can that be? There are branches connected to Jesus that do bear fruit in which we would expect that to be the case. One way of identifying a Christian is by their fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. The word for fruit is used eight times in 16 verses in this section of Scripture and only two other times uh, in the Gospel of John. So it's an important part of this section that we are in. And we recall in Matthew 7, that by their fruit you will know them, says Jesus. God identifies a Christian in one way also by that one's fruit. Does this mean that Arminians are correct then? That a true believer can lose his salvation due to no longer bearing fruit. Oh, he was a Christian at one point in time. I know because I was there with him. But now he's living in sin, living for the world, wants nothing to do with church. See, he lost his salvation. Not so fast. The Bible clearly teaches the perseverance of the saints. I mean, we've covered that. We've gone over that. It's all over the place in the Scripture. All over the place. Particular atonement. John 17. John 10. uh, My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Pretty clear, right there. It's interesting, we were uh, having a discussion yesterday, and Prevail, who speaks French, English, and from my understanding, a little bit of German. I don't know any other languages he may speak. But uh, we were having a conversation, and, and Al was speaking French, and you know, I was listening in. And he asked him a question. Asked him a question, and Prevail responded, because Al asked him, and I think it's okay to share this, because it's an important thing to share. Al asked him, do you believe in predestination? And Prevail responded in some ways. Maybe I'm uh, summarizing here, but he said something along these lines. Yes, it's in the Bible. Of course I believe that. It's clear. It's in the text. Same with perseverance of the saints. So who are these who are connected to Christ but are yet not, not truly children of God? Well, we've looked at this a little bit in in Hebrews when we looked at how the author of Hebrews uh, spoke or wrote on uh, apostates and apostasy. And so we we see that. We would say, well, they would fall in that camp. False converts would fall in that camp. Those who think they are Christian, profess to be Christian, hang out with Christians, but are indeed not Christians. And we say, well, give us an example. Well, Judas Iscariot is one such example of the worst kind. But this would also include uh, those described in Hebrews chapter 6, which we looked at. Those who zealously say they're Christians, but are not. Remember, these are those who are part of the, the, the vine, every branch in me. Those are, and in our vernacular, we'd say those connected to Christianity, those within the local church, 
Those who say that they are Christians zealously say that they are, but are not. Bearing fruit is indeed an attribute of a child of God. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, I'll read it for you. Paul says, My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And chapter 6, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification as an outcome, eternal life. And I have a couple more scriptures for us this morning. I'll just turn there, no need for you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. I'll just read that for us. You were formerly darkness. Christian, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. For the fruit, there's our word, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful, there's our word, unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And we consider, well, what indeed is this fruit that is being spoken about here? Well, Galatians tells us we know this passage. Galatians chapter 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So we ask the question, okay, there's those who bear fruit and there's those who do not. Those who do not are not children of God. What happens to them? Well, verse 6 explains it further. Verse that we will not get into in full detail this morning. But verse 6 of chapter 15 of John, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That does not sound good at all, does it? That should give us a clue that that is not a good thing. They say that they are connected to Christ, but God says otherwise. Matthew 3.10, read that as well. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we see that there is indeed a designated vine, Jesus Christ, the true vine. There are distinguishable branches, those that bear fruit and those that do not bear fruit. And then we have divine pruning, divine pruning. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Still part of verse 2. Grapevines, as I read, require pruning. They require aggressive pruning. Pruning removes growth inhibitors, and pruning promotes growth as well. Jesus, the true vine, the the father, the vine dresser, true Christians are the branches. Jesus is the true vine, the father, the vine dresser. Christians are the branches. True Christians are the branches that bear fruit. All true branches will get pruned. Pruning involves cutting. Sometimes involves chopping, slicing. can be a painful process, I guess, if you were a plant and you thought it hurt if a plant that got hurt, cut. That's another topic. But cutting, if you consider us as people, getting cut hurts. Sliced. It can be a fine cut with a scalpel. Or it can be a large wound with a broadsword. A fine cut and cut and cut. Or being blindsided. Like blindsided with a trial. Pruning. 
as the vine dresser prunes us, his people. It can be a slow process, can't it? And it can be a very painful process. Consider when you may go out in the, in the garden, the yard, the hedge, and you trim the hedge. And it takes time, and you do a little bit at a time, and it promotes growth. And you don't miss anything. You try not to. And it could take you a while to do that. And it takes a while for the growth to come back. That's how we are at times, isn't it? Cutting hurts. But we have to be cut by the vine dresser. Listen to Richard Phillips. He says, The Father applies the pruning knife to our priorities and values and strips away relationships that would hinder our faith. Again, the Father applies the pruning knife to our priorities and our values and strips away relationships that would hinder our faith. It could also be, he says, God's providential arrangement of our circumstances. It could be suffering loss, facing temptation, experiencing reproof. And he says the purpose is not punishment, but pruning, vine dressing. Some of us may be in the process of some severe pruning this morning or this past week. Purpose, we will grow. We will bear more fruit. We will grow in our faith. Peter, who experienced a tremendous amount of pruning by God in his life, said, in 1 Peter, as we're reminded as well, he talks about this inheritance in 1 Peter that we have, Christian. We have this inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled, unfading. It's reserved in heaven for us. So no matter how the pruning goes, that inheritance is there, and it's not going away. Even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, part of the pruning process as well, so that the proof of your faith being made more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection, revelation of Jesus Christ. James has something similar to say as well in chapter 1. Of James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, part of the pruning process, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Stephen Charnock tells us the church grows by tears and withers by smiles. The point being, pruning by God hurts. But as the old saying goes, no pain, no gain, right? Remember that? No pain, no gain. The Christian walk, sanctification is no skip through the daisies. Oftentimes it's like crawling through a rose bush with large thorns. God is the one who prunes us, yet He also gives us a blade as well, doesn't He? A scalpel or a a knife in which we must cut off the arm of the flesh, radical amputation. Or as it says in Hebrews, I referenced it. I'll just read this again. Chapter 12, familiar passage for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. How do we do that? Well, hand me the knife. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to us, but He, being God, disciplines us, Christian, for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. Again, there's a pruning process as well. The discipline by God. Comes with the territory, does it not? Designated vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ. Distinguishable branches, those that bear fruit and those that do not bear fruit. The divine pruning for the Christian. Painful process it can be. 
And then we are distinctly clean. Distinctly clean. Verse 3 of John 15. You are already clean. Jesus is encouraging the disciples here. And by way of application, indeed, we are encouraged by this verse as well. The word for clean is the noun form, the same word for prune in verse 2. The idea is cleansing, which involves pruning, which includes uh, cutting or removing something as well. So first, the disciples are clean already. How are they clean already? Well, by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are already clean. Believing in His Word. Being justified. As Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And remember what Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room not too long before this. You are clean, He said to them. But not all of you. Speaking of Judas. Yet the process of cleansing continues as well for the disciples and for us. And that is what we know as sanctification. So they are already made clean. They are no longer dirty because of their sin anymore because Christ has set them free. And that is the same for every born-again Christian in here this morning. Yet the process of cleansing continues in our sanctification. But often what is missed here is how one is made clean. We see it in the text. You are already clean. Why or how? Or why but mean? By what means? Because of the word which I have spoken to you, says the Lord. Because of the word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of Christ. Initially and ongoing in our lives. Also, the Scriptures are the primary means God uses in our ongoing cleansing. By way of pruning spiritual growth and heart change. As Hebrews, again, I'll reference this text. No need to turn there. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That means we need the Word of God, first and foremost, right? And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Cleansing by the Word of God. The Word penetrates. It cuts. It wounds, exposes things in our hearts. It lays us out completely and provides the much-needed balm to heal us as well. And such cutting is needed and beneficial for the child of God. We are distinctively clean, cleansed by the blood of the crucified one. And then, fifthly, dwelling in union with Christ. So, designated vine, the true vine, distinguishable branches, divine pruning, distinctly clean, and dwelling in union with Christ. Union with Christ or in Christ is uh, a systematic theology term that is worth studying. John Murray has a small book uh, and he, on systematic theology and union with Christ is one of those um, part of the order salutis, the order of salvation. Good to understand what that means in detail, but not for us this morning. To study out further this morning. It is for us. Abide in me and I in you. Verse 4. Abide in me, says the Lord, and I in you. This union with Jesus Christ. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me, says the Lord. This abide, to live in, to dwell in, to be so close to Christ, holding fast to Jesus, close communion with Christ, 
closeness to the words of Christ. Closeness to the Lord in prayer. Abiding in Him. Following after Him. Keeping the hand to the plow and not looking back. For whoever looks back is not worthy to be called His disciple. It is impossible to bear spiritual fruit unless one abides in Christ is in Christ, remains in Christ. The idea is to live such a life that is proof that you are, that you are who you say you are as living in Christ and He lives in you. It even says the text here, so prove to be my disciples in verse 8. Jesus says that. No branch can bear fruit in isolation. It must be connected to the vine. And there's an illustration for us there. We must be connected to the local church. First and foremost, we must be connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ. We also must be connected to the local church. We don't bear fruit in isolation, just going about our own way, doing our own thing. Some vines, some plants, need a whole lot of trimming and pruning, do they not? Before fruit is obvious. And that's true for some of us, isn't it? A whole lot of pruning needed to be done. Sometimes we we get off track and the pruning, here here it comes. The pruning process begins. Sometimes it's a slow process. Sometimes it's fast and furious and painful. Sometimes we undergo a radical pruning by the vine dresser, the father. And it may seem as if we look like a stump in the ground. But the fruit comes back because we're His. We grow again. The leaves start to form. When we think that we are like that or maybe we, we feel like that, maybe we're walking that way in some ways, but we do not see as God sees. Those who remain in Christ will bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 90-fold. Finally, final point, the void without Christ. The void without Christ. Again here, Jesus says, I am the vine. First, he says, I am the true vine. The Greek there and the Greek here. The emphasis, I, I am. Emphasis on who Christ is. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Numerous applications of that. I'll give us one or two. We see the Lord repeats the metaphor with some adjustments here. Bear much fruit. 1 Corinthians 3, I'll read this for us. 13 and following, you can look at it later. Verse 11 actually. Why don't we turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's turn there. Why me read it and you not have it in front of you? First Corinthians chapter 3. We'll just look at a few verses here. <clears throat> Why don't we start in verse 6. I planted, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So just stop there for a moment. We plant, someone else waters, but who causes the growth in someone's life? It is God. We're called to be faithful. We're called to teach. We're called to disciple. We are called to share the gospel, but only God can cause the growth. 
So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me. Like a wise master, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful, careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So when we say, I'm serving the Lord in whatever way, it better be based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It better be for His glory. When we come here in the morning to lead in music, when we come here in the morning to teach, we come here in the morning for Sunday school, for a meeting, whatever it is, it must be labored in prayer. Or it ought to be. And considering in our mind, why are we doing this? What foundation are we laying before us? No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. How so and when? For the day, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, the purification fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do, not, do you not know that you are filled, that you, excuse me, that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Who then should we rely upon, Christian? The Spirit of God, not our own strength. I'll finish with a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. And then I'll ask a question. The last section of this section includes a warning. Apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus. This statement may be applied in two ways. Now, don't don't, uh, fade out now. Don't fade out. Listen in. This statement may be applied in two ways. On the one hand, it may be applied to Christians. And if that is done, we have the following. We have a great work to be done. The possibility of attempting to do it, but without Christ, and the inevitable failure that must result from such effort. Spurgeon, who preached a marvelous sermon on these words, observed this. Spurgeon says, Without Jesus you can talk any quantity, but without Him you can do nothing. We've heard that before, right? Uh, Talk a good game. But when it comes time to game time, they're not found. Excuses are made. Or whatever it may be. Without Jesus, you can talk any quantity. You can talk a good game all you want. But without Him, you can do nothing. The most eloquent discourse without Him will be all a bottle of smoke, he says. You shall lay your plans and arrange your machinery and start your schemes, but without the Lord you will do nothing. Immeasurable cloudland of proposals and not a spot of solid doing large enough for a dove's foot to rest on, and such shall be the end of all. It is good that it is so, for if it were not so, I'm afraid we would try to do all without Him. Nothing is what shall come of our efforts if it's not Christ working. Now on the other hand, as Boyce continues, he says, there is also encouragement in this verse when we realize that it may be applied to those who are yet Christ's enemies. Without Christ, we can do nothing. That is humbling. But if that is true for those who are united to Christ by faith, think of this, if that is true for those who are united to Christ by faith, 
in whom he nevertheless dwells, how much truer is it of those who have not at all united to him? They may try to do something against the gospel. They may try to destroy Christ's work. But all of their efforts will come to nothing. For only the hand of man and not that of God is in them. The gates of hell will not prevail. The gospel will continue to go forth. And so I ask the final question as we consider the the pruning process, we consider the true vine, we consider apart from Christ we can do nothing. And apart from Christ, the, the world can do nothing against us. The question being, if Christ is for us, who then can be against us? Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for Your Word and the reminders from John 15. Jesus, the true vine. And God, the Father, as You are the vine dresser. And You prune us up. You know what is best for us. You know how we need to be cut here and cut there. And you do it with such a loving hand because you love your people and you discipline those who are yours. We thank you for that, God. Although in the time when it's going on, we may question you. We may grit our teeth and it's hard. But you forgive us and you lead us along never to leave us nor forsake us. You are the great shepherd of our souls, O Lord Jesus. You are the true vine. We are to bear fruit. Help us in that way to rely upon You to bear fruit, O Lord. And we pray, O God, that those who may be sitting in our midst who may be in some way connected to You by way of the local church, by way of friends, or by way of being a Christian in name only or a false convert, Lord, but not yet knowing You, that You would save their soul today, Lord. That they would turn to Christ, the One who was crucified for sinners. That they would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls. And we pray, Lord, that You would have these things fixated upon our minds as we go about our day. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.